Chapter 54, Part 1 of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ed Mead. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5, Chapter 54, Part 1. Chapter 54, Origin and Doctrine of the Paulicians. Part 1. Origin and Doctrine of the Paulicians, Their Persecution by the Greek Emperors, Revolt in Armenia, etc., Transplantation into Thrace, Propagation in the West, The Seeds, Character, and Consequences of the Reformation. In the profession of Christianity, the variety of national characters may be clearly distinguished. The natives of Syria and Egypt abandoned their lives to lazy and contemplative devotion. Rome again aspired to the dominion of the world, and the wit of the lively and loquacious Greeks was consumed in the disputes of metaphysical theology. The incomprehensible mysteries of the Trinity and Incarnation, instead of commanding their silent submission, were agitated in vehement and subtle controversies, which enlarged their faith at the expense, perhaps, of their charity and reason. From the Council of Nice to the end of the seventh century, the peace and unity of the Church was invaded by these spiritual wars, and so deeply did they affect the decline and fall of the Empire, that the historian has too often been compelled to attend the synods, to explore the creeds, and to enumerate the sects of this busy period of ecclesiastical annals. From the beginning of the eighth century to the last stages of the Byzantine Empire, the sound of controversy was seldom heard. Curiosity was exhausted, zeal was fatigued, and in the decrees of six councils the articles of the Catholic faith have been irrevocably defined. The spirit of dispute, however vain and pernicious, requires some energy and exercise of the mental faculties, and the prostrate Greeks were content to fast, to pray, and to believe in blind obedience to the patriarch and his clergy. During a long dream of superstition, the Virgin and the Saints, their visions and miracles, their relics and images, were preached by the monks and worshipped by the people, and the appellation of people might be extended without injustice to the first ranks of civil society. At an unseasonable moment, the Isaurian emperors attempted somewhat rudely to awaken their subjects. Under their influence, reason might obtain some proselytes, a far greater number was swayed by interest or fear. But the Eastern world embraced or deplored their visible deities, and the restoration of images was celebrated as the Feast of Orthodoxy. In this passive and unanimous state, the ecclesiastical rulers were relieved from the toil or deprived of the pleasure of persecution. The pagans had disappeared, the Jews were silent and obscure, the disputes with the Latins were rare and remote hostilities against a national enemy, and the sects of Egypt and Syria enjoyed a free toleration under the shadow of the Arabian caliphs. About the middle of the seventh century, a branch of Manichaeans was selected as the victims of spiritual tyranny. Their patience was at length exasperated to despair and rebellion, and their exile has scattered over the West the seeds of reformation. These important events will justify some inquiry into the doctrine and story of the Paulicians, and as they cannot plead for themselves, our candid criticism will magnify the good 
and abate or suspect the evil that is reported by their adversaries. The Gnostics, who had distracted the infancy, were oppressed by the greatness and authority of the Church. Instead of emulating or surpassing the wealth, learning, and numbers of the Catholics, their obscure remnant was driven from the capitals of the East and West, and confined to the villages and mountains along the borders of the Euphrates. Some vestige of the Marcionites may be detected in the 5th century, but the numerous sects were finally lost in the odious name of the Manichaeans, and these heretics, who presumed to reconcile the doctrines of Zoroaster and Christ, were pursued by the two religions with equal and unrelenting hatred. Under the grandson of Heraclius, in the neighborhood of Samosoda, more famous for the birth of Lucian than for the title of a Syrian kingdom, a reformer arose, esteemed by the Paulicians as the chosen messenger of truth. In his humble dwelling of Mananalus, Constantine entertained a deacon who returned from Syrian captivity and received the inestimable gift of the New Testament, which was already concealed from the vulgar by the prudence of the Greek and perhaps of the Gnostic clergy. These books became the measure of his studies and the rule of his faith, and the Catholics, who dispute his interpretation, acknowledge that his text was genuine and sincere. But he attached himself with particular devotion to the writings and character of St. Paul. The name of the Paulicians is derived by their enemies from some unknown and domestic teacher, but I am confident that they gloried in their affinity to the apostle of the Gentiles. His disciples, Titus, Timothy, Silvanus, Tychicus, were represented by Constantine and his fellow laborers. The names of the apostolic churches were applied to the congregations which they assembled in Armenia and Cappadocia, and this innocent allegory revived the example and memory of the first ages. In the Gospel and the Epistles of St. Paul, his faithful follower investigated the creed of primitive Christianity, and whatever might be the success, the Protestant reader will applaud the spirit of the inquiry. But if the scriptures of the Paulicians were pure, they were not perfect. Their founders rejected the two epistles of St. Peter, the apostle of the circumcision, whose dispute with their favorite for the observance of the law could not easily be forgiven. They agree with their Gnostic brethren in the universal contempt for the Old Testament, the Book of Moses and the Prophets, which have been consecrated by the decrees of the Catholic Church. With equal boldness, and doubtless with more reason, Constantine, the new Sylvanus, disclaimed the visions which, in so many bulky and splendid volumes, have been published by the Oriental sects, the fabulous productions of the Hebrew patriarchs and the sages of the East. The spurious gospels, epistles, and acts which in the first age had overwhelmed the orthodox code, the theology of Manus and the authors of the kindred heresies, and the thirty generations or eons which had been created by the fruitful fancy of Valentine. The Paulicians sincerely condemned the memory and opinions of the Manichaean sect, and complained of the injustice which imprisoned that invidious name on the simple votaries of St. Paul and of Christ. Of the ecclesiastical chain, many links had been broken by the Paulician reformers, and their liberty was enlarged as they reduced the number of masters at whose voice profane reason must bow to mystery and miracle. 
the early separation of the Gnostics had preceded the establishment of the Catholic worship, and against the gradual innovations of discipline and doctrine, they were as strongly guarded by habit and aversion as by the silence of St. Paul and the Evangelists. The objects which had been transformed by the magic of superstition appeared to the eyes of the Paulicians in their genuine and naked colors. An image made without hands was the common workmanship of a mortal artist, to whose skill alone the wood and canvas must be indebted for their merit or value. The miraculous relics were a heap of bones and ashes, destitute of life or virtue, or of any relation, perhaps, with the person to whom they were ascribed. The true and vivifying cross was a piece of sound or rotten timber, the body and blood of Christ, a loaf of bread and a cup of wine, the gifts of nature and the symbols of grace. The mother of God was degraded from her celestial honors and immaculate virginity, and the saints and angels were no longer solicited to exercise the laborious office of meditation in heaven and ministry upon earth. In the practice, or at least in the theory, of the sacraments, the Paulicians were inclined to abolish all visible objects of worship, and the words of the gospel were, in their judgment, the baptism and communion of the faithful. They indulged a convenient latitude for the interpretation of Scripture, and as often as they were pressed by the literal sense, they could escape to the intricate mazes of figure and allegory. Their utmost diligence must have been employed to dissolve the connection between the Old and the New Testament, since they adored the latter as the oracles of God, and abhorred the former as the fabulous and absurd invention of men or demons. We cannot be surprised that they should have found in the gospel the orthodox mystery of the Trinity, but instead of confessing the human nature and substantial sufferings of Christ, they amused their fancy with a celestial body that passed through the Virgin like water through a pipe, with a fantastic crucifixion that eluded the vain and important malice of the Jews. A creed thus simple and spiritual was not adapted to the genius of the times, and the rational Christian, who might have been contented with the light yoke and easy burden of Jesus and his apostles, was justly offended that the Paulicians should dare to violate the unity of God, the first article of natural and revealed religion. Their belief and their trust was in the Father, of Christ, of the human soul, and of the invisible world. But they likewise held the eternity of matter, a stubborn and rebellious substance, the origin of a second principle of an active being who has created this visible world and exercises his temporal reign till the final consummation of death and sin. The appearances of moral and physical evil had established the two principles in the ancient philosophy and religion of the East, from whence this doctrine was transfused to the various swarms of the Gnostics. A thousand shades may be devised in the nature and character of Ariman, from a rival god to a subordinate demon, from passion and frailty to pure and perfect malevolence. But, in spite of our efforts, the goodness and the power of Ormuz are placed at the opposite extremities of the line, and every step that approaches the one must recede in equal proportion from the other. The apostolic labors of Constantine Silvanus soon multiplied the number of his disciples, 
the secret recompense of spiritual ambition. The remnant of the Gnostic sects, and especially the Manichaeans of Armenia, were united under his standard. Many Catholics were converted or seduced by his arguments, and he preached with success in the regions of Pontus and Cappadocia, which had long since imbibed the religion of Zoroaster. The Paulician teachers were distinguished only by their scriptural names, by the modest title of fellow pilgrims, by the austerity of their lives, their zeal or knowledge, and the credit of some extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit. But they were incapable of desiring, or at least of obtaining, the wealth and honors of the Catholic prelacy. Such anti-Christian pride they bitterly censured, and even the ranks of elders or presbyters was condemned as an institution of the Jewish synagogue. The new sect was loosely spread over the provinces of Asia Minor to the westward of the Euphrates. Six of their principal congregations represented the churches to which St. Paul had addressed his epistles, and their founder chose his residence in the neighborhood of Colonia, in the same district of Pontus which had been celebrated by the altars of Bologna and the miracles of Gregory. After a mission of twenty-seven years, Sylvanus, who had retired from the tolerating government of the Arabs, fell a sacrifice to Roman persecution. The laws of the pious emperors, which seldom touched the lives of less odious heretics, proscribed without mercy or disguise the tenets, the books, and the persons of the Montanists and Manichaeans. The books were delivered to the flames, and all who should presume to secrete such writings or to profess such opinions were devoted to an ignominious death. A Greek minister, armed with legal and military powers, appeared at Colonia to strike the shepherd and to reclaim, if possible, the lost sheep. By a refinement of cruelty, Simeon placed the unfortunate Sylvanus before a line of his disciples, who were commanded, as the price of their pardon and the proof of their repentance, to massacre their spiritual father. They turned aside from the impious office. The stones dropped from their filial hands, and of the whole number only one executioner could be found, a new David, as he is styled by the Catholics, who boldly overthrew the giant of heresy. This apostate, Justin was his name, again deceived and betrayed his unsuspecting brethren, and a new conformity to the acts of St. Paul may be found in the conversion of Simeon. Like the apostle, he embraced the doctrine which he had been sent to persecute, renounced his honors and fortunes, and required among the Paulicians the fame of a missionary and a martyr. They were not ambitious of martyrdom but in a calamitous period of one hundred and fifty years their patience sustained whatever zeal could inflict, and power was insufficient to eradicate the obstinate vegetation of fanaticism and reason. From the blood and ashes of the first victims, a succession of teachers and congregations repeatedly arose. Amidst their foreign hostilities, they found leisure for domestic quarrels. They preached, they disputed, they suffered and the virtues, the apparent virtues, of Sergius, in a pilgrimage of thirty-three years, are reluctantly confessed by the orthodox historians. The native cruelty of Justinian II was stimulated by a pious cause, 
and he vainly hoped to extinguish, in a single conflagration, the name and memory of the Paulicians. By their primitive simplicity, their abhorrence of popular superstition, the iconoclast princes might have been reconciled to some erroneous doctrines, but they themselves were exposed to the calumnies of the monks, and they chose to be the tyrants, lest they should be accused as the accomplices of the Manichaeans. Such a reproach has sullied the clemency of Nicephorus, who relaxed in their favor the severity of the penal statutes, nor will his character sustain the honor of a more liberal motive. The feeble Michael I, the rigid Leo the Armenian, were foremost in the race of persecution, but the prize must doubtless be adjudged to the sanguinary devotion of Theodora, who restored the images to the Oriental Church. Her inquisitors explored the cities and mountains of the Lesser Asia, and the flatterers of the Empress have affirmed that, in a short reign, one hundred thousand Paulicians were extirpated by the sword, the gibbet, or the flames. Her guilt or merit has perhaps been stretched beyond the measure of truth, but if the account be allowed, it must be presumed that many simple iconoclasts were punished under a more odious name, and that some who were driven from the church unwillingly took refuge in the bosom of heresy. The most furious and desperate of rebels are the sectaries of a religion long persecuted and at length provoked. In a holy cause they are no longer susceptible of fear or remorse. The justice of their arms hardens them against the feelings of humanity, and they revenge their father's wrongs on the children of their tyrants. Such have been the Hussites of Bohemia and the Calvinists of France, and such in the ninth century were the Paulicians of Armenia and the adjacent provinces. They were first awakened to the massacre of a governor and bishop who exercised the imperial mandate of converting or destroying the heretics, and the deepest recesses of Mount Argaeus protected their independence and revenge. A more dangerous and consuming flame was kindled by the persecution of Theodora and the revolt of Carbaeus, a valiant Paulician who commanded the guards of the General of the East. His father had been impaled by the Catholic inquisitors, and religion, or at least nature, might justify his desertion and revenge. Five thousand of his brethren were united by the same motives. They renounced the allegiance of anti-Christian Rome. A Saracen emir introduced Carbaeus to the caliph, and the commander of the faithful extended his scepter to the implacable enemy of the Greeks. In the mountains between Siwas and Trebizond, he founded or fortified the city of Tefrica, which is still occupied by a fierce or licentious people, and the neighboring hills were covered with the Paulician fugitives, who now reconciled the use of the Bible and the sword. During more than thirty years, Asia was afflicted by the calamities of foreign and domestic war. In their hostile inroads, the disciples of St. Paul were joined with those of Mohammed, and the peaceful Christians, the aged parent and tender virgin, who were delivered into barbarous servitude, might justly accuse the intolerant spirit of their sovereign. So urgent was the mischief, so intolerable the shame, that even the dissolute Michael, the son of Theodora, was compelled to march in person against the Paulicians. He was defeated under the walls of Samosota, 
and the Roman emperor fled before the heretics whom his mother had condemned to the flames. The Saracens fought under the same banner, but the victory was ascribed to Carbaeus, and the captive generals, with more than a hundred tribunes, were either released by his avarice or tortured by his fanaticism. The valor and ambition of Chrysocheir, his successor, embraced a wider circle of rapine and revenge. In alliance with his faithful Moslems, he boldly penetrated into the heart of Asia. The troops of the frontier and the palace were repeatedly overthrown. The edicts of persecution were answered by the pillage of Nice and Nicomedia, of Ancyra and Ephesus. Nor could the Apostle St. John protect from violation his city and sepulchre. The cathedral of Ephesus was turned into a stable for mules and horses, and the Paulicians vied with the Saracens in their contempt and abhorrence of images and relics. It is not unpleasing to observe the triumph of rebellion over the same despotism which had disdained the prayers of an injured people. The emperor Basil, the Macedonian, was reduced to sue for peace, to offer a ransom for the captives, and to request, in the language of moderation and charity, that Chrysocheir would spare his fellow Christians, and content himself with a royal donative of gold and silver and silk garments. If the emperor, replied the insolent fanatic, be desirous of peace, let him abdicate the east and reign without molestation in the west. If he refuse, the servants of the Lord will precipitate him from the throne. The reluctant Basil suspended the treaty, accepted the defiance, and led his army into the land of heresy, which he wasted with fire and sword. The open country of the Paulicians was exposed to the same calamities which they had inflicted. But when he had explored the strength of Tefrica, the multitude of the barbarians, and the ample magazine of arms and provisions, he desisted with a sigh from the hopeless siege. On his return to Constantinople, he labored, by the foundation of convents and churches, to secure the aid of his celestial patrons, of Michael the Archangel and the prophet Elijah, and it was his daily prayer that he might live to transpierce, with three arrows, the head of his impious adversary. Beyond his expectation, the wish was accomplished. After a successful inroad, Chrysocheir was surprised and slain in his retreat, and the rebel's head was triumphantly presented at the foot of the throne. On the reception of this welcome trophy, Basil instantly called for his bow, discharged three arrows with unerring aim, and accepted the applause of the court, who hailed the victory of the royal archer. With Chrysocheir, the glory of the Paulicians faded and withered. On the second expedition of the emperor, the impregnable Tefrique was deserted by the heretics, who sued for mercy or escaped to the borders. The city was ruined but the spirit of independence survived in the mountains. The Paulicians defended, above a century, their religion and liberty, infested the Roman limits, and maintained their perpetual alliance with the enemies of the empire and the gospel. End of chapter 54, part 1